Hello, it's Dan here, and you're listening to the Physiology and Behavior Podcast. This episode is a recording of a recent talk that I gave on heart rate variability at Leiden University. In this talk, I provide an overview of heart rate variability and its role in mental illness, and I also cover how reduced heart rate variability has important functional significance for social behaviors and psychological flexibility. The link to the uh, PowerPoint slides will be found in the show notes. I hope you enjoy the episode. So, yes, I'm going to be talking about uh, heart rate variability uh, today. Um, uh, sometimes I abbreviate this to HRV, and I've been told um, very occasionally that because of my accent, if you haven't heard, guessed it already, I'm Australian, that um, pe- people often mistake me saying uh, H- HRV for HIV. So, I'm not talking about HIV AIDS, although that's important. I'm talking about HRV. So, uh, just in case there's any... Uh, any confusion later in the presentation. Okay, so just for a bit of context, um, hands up people who are familiar with HRV, almost everyone. Um, so yeah, about 50%. And hands up people who are actually using HRV within their own research at the moment. Okay, a little bit less. Hopefully I can convince you by the end of the talk that uh, HRV is a really useful tool to use within, uh, within, your, within your own research. But I'll just give a, a, a bit of an introduction to, to what HIV is. Um, so pretty much if, if you were to feel your pulse right now, you'll, obviously you'll be able to notice your heartbeat. And it, uh, it seems pretty stable. I mean, obviously it increases a little bit when you're doing some exercise or if, you, if you're a bit nervous um, and it decreases when you're calm. But um, if you actually look closely within the, um, uh, if you're looking at an ECG, for instance, there's actually some small variation between your heartbeats. And this is what heart rate variability is. Uh, this is an example of, uh, of an ECG, and you can see the differences there. But there's a number of different ways that you can actually measure uh, HRV. You can use pulse oximetry by a clip on your finger or your toe or your ear. Um, you can use watches nowadays to do this. You can use chest straps. Um, now you can actually use webcams that actually sense the difference in color on your forehead, which is a reflection of your heart beating as well. And you can even use toilets to measure HIV, believe it or not. It's the technology's out there. I don't know why, but it's out there. Um, but there are a number of ways that you can measure these things. And the most traditional way within research, at least, is ECG. But uh, pulse oximetry is actually becoming uh, more popular. Okay, this is a very, very simplified model of uh, autonomic cardiac control. Uh, your heart rate is actually governed more or less completely by both the parasympathetic and the sympathetic nervous system. Um, and that the sympathetic nervous, the parasympathetic nervous system is, uh, modulated by acetylcholine and the sympathetic by norepinephrine. And this is a, a feedback system which actually regulates your heart rate between these two systems here. Uh, I don't know about you, but, um, when I was in first, second year psychology, uh, when I was taught about the autonomic nervous system, I was taught that there's kind of this, this opposing force between sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system activity that if parasympathetic goes up, sympathetic must go down and vice versa. But this is actually, uh, this is actually incorrect. Uh, quite often, if you actually look at, um, if you, if you type in HRV in your app store, Google app store or Apple app store, uh, there's a lot of apps which make a lot of promises, which, which tell you this app can tell you the balance of your autonomic nervous system, that some days you're going to have a more sympathetic nervous system or a parasympathetic nervous system. But this simply isn't the case. You can't measure sympathetic nervous system activity accurately from interbeat intervals. You can measure parasympathetic, but you can't do sympathetic. The reality is that um, these two things, in some circumstances, you do get the you, you, you do get the situation where one does go up and the other goes down. But these two things are not necessarily coupled. It's important to, to recognize that these two things can actually go in different directions, or they can go both ways. Um, here's a typical trace of uh, interbeat intervals. This is taken over two minutes, and um, each point represents an interbeat interval here. And you can notice there's actually quite quite a pattern that's happening with these uh, with these intervals here. One thing that we can do when we're actually looking at these interbeat intervals is we can look at what the underlying rhythms are. Here we can actually see uh, that there's three different rhythms. Um, th- this is over the time course of a minute. We see one which goes for about one, one cycle over the course of a minute. 
another one which does about six, and another one which does about 15. Now, this is actually very similar to what happens to when you're actually looking at these interbeat interval traces. And you can see when you do, uh, when you look at the frequency that there's a really, uh, there's um, this particular thing. The output is you get one at a very low frequency, um, one at a, at a low frequency, and one at a high frequency. And essentially, when we're looking at interbit interval data, this is what we get. We get three peaks. We get a, a very low, uh, a very low frequency peak. Um, now, this can only really be accurate when you're measuring interbit interval data over the course of a day for a halter monitor. Um, say you're not feeling well, you're, you feel like you're getting some heart flutters, and you, and you go to your doctor, and um, they might actually send you off to a cardiologist, and the cardiologist will give you a halter monitor to measure your uh, electrocardiogram for the entire day. And one thing they can look at is this very low frequency. Remembering that this actually changes uh, about one about one cycle a minute. And it, it typically reflects, re reflects more circadian rhythm type stuff. Then you have this, uh, this low frequency, which is about sort of five, six cycles a minute. You get this peak here. And then you get this high peak, which is about 15 cycles a minute. Now, one of the ways that we actually know that heart rate variability is, uh, is linked to these, um, um, to, to the parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system activity is that if you pharmacologically blockade the parasympathetic nervous system, this high frequency peak almost vanishes completely. And this is work that's been done in the 70s and 80s that demonstrates how these things are linked. And based on this, this is how we can actually see that um, by measuring heart rate variability, you can approximate the parasympathetic nervous system activity. Now, when you look at the low frequency, it only eliminates about 70% uh, doing parasympathetic blockade. So what does LF mean? Um, one of my colleagues actually looked at this and looked at a sample of about 100 papers um, published in a few journals over, over, a, over a year, and there are a number of different responses. Um, some people gave uh, no response whatsoever, um, others said it was a measure of autonomic balance. Uh, others said it was sympathetic nervous system activity. And uh, others said that it was uh, the, uh, the activity of the baroreflex, which is blood pressure regulation. Uh, of all this, only one of these were right, and that's the baroreflex. So not, uh, not many when you actually look at the numbers. About six out of 100 actually correctly identified the purpose of low-frequency heart rate variability. Now, Low frequency heart rate, heart rate variability, um, low frequency is related to sympathetic nervous system activity only under very specific circumstances, such as going on a tilt table, which uh, manipulates posture. Um, and, it, but in other situations, this is, this is merely about a, a measure of the baroreflex. There are ways that you can actually measure sympathetic nervous system activity, such as the pre-ejection period, for instance, um, and also actually putting sensors into nerves in your in the calf muscle, which is very difficult as you could imagine, but you can't measure it accurately using electrocardiogram or interbeat intervals. Um, this has gotten so bad that people have literally written obituaries to the idea of sympathovagal balance, but people still keep publishing it. So this is something that I call a zombie theory, something that will not die, this idea that sympathovagal balance is a thing, despite all the evidence suggesting that it is. Okay, so why study HIV in mental illness? People often ask me, how did you get into this? Um, I finished my um, honours study in Australia, which is roughly equivalent to a master's. I did that in social psychology. And then I got a new job as a research assistant. And my boss at the time, who eventually became my PhD supervisor, said, okay, we have this big data set of all these measures, of all these physiological measures, um, and we're looking at it in the context of depression. Um, have a look through and see what you, see, see what you can do with it. And there was stuff like fMRI, um, like EEG, um, neurocognitive measures, stuff I didn't really understand because I, I had a background in social psychology. And then I saw one thing called heart rate variability. I'm like, heart rate? That could not be that hard. And that's, that's how I got into it. Like, seriously. <laughs> but when you, when, you, when you look at it, the, the real reason that people originally started looking at HIV in mental illness is that um, people with mental illness um, over above the effect of medications um, tend to have high rates of cardiovascular disease. And uh, HIV first came on the scene in the 70s, looking at uh, the, uh, the stress of the fetus. And then after that, they looked at ways of actually predicting mortality post-myocardial infarction. And they found that after 
after um, after a heart attack, people with low heart rate heart rate variability are more likely to die a few years later. So based on on those things, people started looking at okay, if there's a high rate of cardiovascular diseases within mental illnesses, is there lower rates of HRV within these mental illnesses? So this is what we started looking at. Now, when it comes to HIV in psychiatry, um, I like to think there's there's been three generations of research, so to speak. Uh, the first generation of research, which kind of began around the mid-90s, was this question of, is HIV reduced in psychiatric illness? Uh, it, it's pretty well established that it is. Uh, almost in every single disorder that we've looked at, um, there's been a reduction. I think the only disorder that actually has an increase of HIV is in anorexia. And that's probably due to uh, almost a survival reflex um, that um, it's basically energy energy regulation. Um, not much work has been done in that, but that's the only disorder where HIV is actually increased. Otherwise, if you look at all these disorders, you actually find that um, there is a decrease in heart rate variability, in depression, in social anxiety, in anxiety disorders in general. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, and I've more recently been doing work in schizophrenia and bipolar disorder as well. Uh, as well as early psychosis. So pretty much the whole gamut of psychiatric uh, illnesses. So the question is, is there any illness which actually has stronger reductions compared to other illnesses? Um, and, and we answered this question a, a few years ago where we grouped together within the meta-analysis um, anxiety-related disorders, mood disorders and psychotic disorders and substance use disorders. And we found that the strongest or largest effect sizes were with uh, psychotic disorders when it came to the reduction of HRV. Um, and here's another way of actually looking at these, um, these, these reductions here. You can actually see that anxiety, affective disorders are very similar when it comes to their reductions of HRV, but psychosis really stands out when it comes to the decreases in HRV that you, um, that you see. And this isn't, this, this isn't actually due to medications. Um, some medications do reduce HRV. For instance, tricyclic medications. Um, and about half any of the antipsychotics actually reduce HRV. But generally speaking, most um, uh, psychoactive medications don't have much of an impact on HRV. So it's not that. It's something about the disorder. Uh, of, of course, one of the first questions I get asked is, you know, what's the direction of causality? Uh, of course, it probably goes both ways. It's hard to actually figure out whether it was a reduction of HIV that came first um, or whether the disorders actually contributed to HIV. Uh, but one thing that's interesting is that HIV is highly heritable. So people that are related actually have similar rates of HIV. And this suggests that um, perhaps this actually gives you a, a predisposition towards the development of mental illnesses um, because it seems like you might have a trait of a lower HIV which might contribute to these things. So that, that's a current idea that we have at the moment. Yes, of course. In what uh, situations is it beneficial to have a variable heart rate? And does it matter in what context you're testing these patients? Yes, uh, I'm going to get into that um, when, when, it, when it comes to that. Um, typically, when we're actually measuring heart rate variability, we're doing it at rest. Um, but in patients, that actually has a few extra little complications, which, which, which I'll mention. Um, of course, there are other ways of doing it. You can do stress tests as well. Um, but, it, but in this, the majority of the research has been done sort of a five-minute resting state. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I will absolutely return to that. Um, okay, so basically, we can't use HIV to identify particular illnesses. It seems very general, very generic, kind of like C-reactive protein, in that if you're measuring C-reactive protein or CAP in the blood, um, you can't really say what's going on in the body. You can say something's a bit off, but you, can't, you have to investigate a little bit more. So think of HIV like that. It can only identify that, yes, something is a bit off. There is evidence of this, but you can't actually specify uh, what particular mental illnesses these uh, these things are related to only that people uh, are generally ill. So the question is, well, what features of uh, these illnesses are these reductions related to? And this this seems to be like the next generation of research that um, that people are people are getting into. Um, one way of thinking about this is of looking at HIV in more of a dimensional aspect. And three things that I want to go over today is this idea of HIV being related to more specifically generalized anxiety or, or rumination is another way of thinking of it, of, um, of social cognition, um, which is something that I've been particularly interested in over the past few years, 
Um, and also this idea of psychological flexibility. Uh, one of the things which sort of uh, brought us onto this idea when it came to generalized anxiety was um, a number of years ago, we did an investigation um, looking at, because um, obviously depression um, doesn't often just come with depression. It, it's often comorbid with other disorders um, and anxiety is, is a common comorbidity within depression. And uh, in this particular sample, we were looking at um, uh, p- healthy controls, uh, people with depression and, uh, and no anxiety, and uh, people with depression and, uh, and PTSD and people with depression and generalized anxiety disorder. And for this particular study, we found that the biggest reductions for people with depression were the people that also had comorbid generalized anxiety disorder. When we ran a meta-analysis, or one of the students in the lab ran a meta-analysis, which looked at different anxiety disorders, we found, once again, that uh, generalized anxiety disorder had the largest effect size of all the anxiety disorders. Uh, so, we want to take a closer look at this by looking specifically at the idea of worry or, or rumination um, in, um, in a sample of patients. So, what we did, we, we categorized our sample two ways. We... Um, we had uh, one of our students actually do a full a full mini and a full diagnosis of, of participants, and people were either um, diagnosed with uh, with an anxiety disorder, um, or they were typical controls. Um, but we also actually gave a questionnaire which looked at a specific measure of um, of worry or rumination, and by doing this, we're able to further categorize what the groups, uh, or we're able to further f- further categorize the groups, and you can actually see that. A number of the healthy controls, which didn't actually reach criteria for an anxiety disorder, actually had higher rates of worry. Um, and that was pretty evenly split between the two. And there was actually a few of the patients that were diagnosed with an anxiety disorder who actually had low rates of, ro- of worry as well. But you can actually see how these things split apart. So, we have this sort of categorical um, division of anxiety and healthy controls. Um, but we also have this idea of specifically looking at one symptom, which is worry or rumination. So, what we found here is that um, we didn't actually find a significant difference in HRV um, between our clinical group and between our healthy control group. But once you actually categorize people based on their degree of worry or their degree of rumination, uh, we found that there was a significant difference in, in HRV. So, this is just another way of looking at it that rather than actually looking at things through this kind of categorical framework that if you look at things dimensionally, perhaps we can actually get a better understanding of, uh, of what's going on with, uh, with HRV. Um, and, and we did find these uh, relationships with the, the Penn State Worry Questionnaire, which is what we use to categorize um, worry from, from memory. And, uh, and we looked at a few other correlations as well. There wasn't a correlation with, uh, with uh, anxiety, stress, um, or depression. Okay, so when it comes to social cognition, um, this is actually the first study I did for my PhD. And um, what we did for this particular study was we presented and got participants to do the reading the mind in the eyes task. Uh, this is a commonly used task where participants are presented with 36 uh, images of the eye region and asked, out of four choices, what is this person thinking or feeling? It's a really popular task, uh, particularly within... Um, uh, it's great at uh, categorizing, for instance, autism. Um, and, and schizophrenia as well. The, the difference in scores are actually um, uh, quite, quite stark. Um, but even with healthy neurotypical participants, you actually do get a nice normal distribution um, of scores. People, some people are better at understanding the thoughts and inten- intentions of other people. Um, so for this particular study, uh, is about 70 participants or so, and they did the test. And then later on, we measured heart rate variability and we found that um, after adjusting for important covariates, um, for instance, like sex, there is a difference um, between heart rate variability between men and women. Um, also, things like BMI, general fitness, those things make a difference as well. Um, that there was a relationship that people who had increased HRV, which remember is related to parasympathetic nervous system activity, performed better on the reading the mind and the eyes task. Um, so, this was um, this is cool to get as a first outcome. Um, for, uh, for a study. And it was nice to see this link between social cognition and heart rate variability. This has also been shown with, uh, uh, with autism as well. Participants with autism, uh, participants with autism who have higher heart rate variability perform better 
when it comes to motion recognition. So this was my, my, my first study, my PhD. And of course, you always think back going, well, we got an effect, but was it, was it real? You know, we're always thinking about this idea of this is purely an association. There are so many other factors which might come in play, which might better explain this association between HRV and emotion recognition. Um, so we need to actually figure out ways of experimentally uh, manipulating HRV. Believe it or not, this is one of them. Um, this, if you put your head underwater, you actually increase HRV um, because this is activating the dive reflex, which most mammals have. Um, the more time you spend in water, the stronger your dive reflex. Seals have an amazing dive reflex. You actually put sensors on them and they dive and they dive and heart rate variability as a, as a way of energy conservation actually, uh, actually increases and your heart rate slows down. So by doing this, you can measure HRV. Um, me and a colleague read this in papers going, this is pretty cool. And we tried it ourselves. So people were walking past the hallway and seeing me kind of holding my mate's head underwater while we're doing that. They're going, what are you doing? Um, but as you could imagine, getting this past an ethics committee for undergraduates would be very difficult. So we thought, no, nah, we, we, we can't do this, but it's, it's, it's an important, it's a, it's a very interesting phenomenon, um, nonetheless. But if you actually cool around the eye region, you can actually activate the dive reflex in a similar way because your face can't tell the difference between I'm diving into a body of water versus my eyes are being cooled down. So we tried this. We actually tried what happens to HRV when you cool around the eye region. Um, of course, ethics was totally cool with this. So what we found was that facial cooling actually did uh, did increase HRV. Um, and then when we, uh, when we actually did this during a social cognition task, um, this task actually abolished the increases that we did actually see. Uh, so this is an interesting sort of, uh, first look at how we could do this. But the, 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 the trouble is it's very hard to, um, create a control condition for an ice pack on your forehead. The, the closest that we could come to, at least in this case, was just putting an ice pack, which is at a normal temperature. But in this case, it's extremely obvious as to what condition you've been randomized to. Um, so that's a potential drawback. Um, with, with this approach, but there are better ways that you could potentially, um, influence the, um, the vagal system, um, uh, without actually revealing the blind. And that's with the vagus nerve stimulation. Um, this is an excellent approach to be able to manipulate the vagus nerve by using these things, which look, look like headphones. Um, and unless your participants have a very good working knowledge of facial nerve anatomy, they're not going to know whether they're in the sham condition or the active condition. Now, within the active condition, there are nerves around the auricular branch, um, which are able to actually stimulate the vagus nerve. And this is a really, really cool approach, and it's non-invasive. Um, vagus nerve stimulation has been around for quite a long time, but traditionally, it's been incredibly invasive because you actually wrap a sensor around your vagus nerve, around your vagus nerve. But by doing this, you can do this non-invasively on your ear. It's a really, really cool approach. So, I was so glad to see that after my initial experiment with the reading of mind and the eyes task, which I was sort of a little bit going, well, you know, what's the direction of causality? To see that um, Lorenzo and colleagues had actually found this as well, that vagus nerve stimulation uh, increased performance on exactly the same reading the mind and the eyes task. So not only do we have this association, but this seems to be causative as well. This is really nice to see. And as a follow-up, that um, it, 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 it also increased it on facial emotion recognition, but not body a body emotion recognition. We, we, you can often see emotions through posture, for instance, but it seems like the face actually plays a, a more important role, probably because it actually transmits a little bit more information, um, you know, uh, than, than what's happening, for instance, when it comes to, 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 to body posture. Okay, so we've got this dimensional approach when it comes to generalized anxiety, this dimensional approach when it comes to social cognition, um, but what about psychological flexibility? Um, but before we go there, I'm going to talk about uh, roundworms. Um, roundworms are a very extremely simple organism, and uh, they've got about 300 neurons. Um, but um, somewhere down the line, we did have a common ancestor. Um, but um, so they're a really nice model of actually looking at how actually things changed over the course of, of evolution. Um, and roundworms, believe it or not, are actually um, quite adept at learning. Uh, so, for instance. Uh, Roundworms generally like low salt environments with a bit of food. If you present a roundworm, put it in sort of a little, a little dish and uh, present a low environment, a low salt environment with food, 
that will approach it. However, if you uh, then present it again with low salt and remove the food, this becomes aversive and actually learn, they actually avoid this environment because it's not going to give them any food. And they quickly learn that um, once they get presented with a low salt environment again, they still avoid it. These simple organisms with 300 neurons have actually learned very quickly to adapt their behavior. So, behavior adaption is incredibly important for, for humans, but you can actually see that uh, this is evolutionarily conserved, this idea that you can actually adjust your behavior in light of the environment. Now, heart rate variability may actually index your ability to adjust to, uh, to, adjust to a changing environment. Uh, once again, we've got a causative relationship between high HIV and greater cognitive flexibility. Um, uh, in this, there was a relationship. High HIV had lower overall switch costs, which is related to behavioral flexibility. Um, now, this is a brick, obviously, um, and a really nice way of actually looking at how you can actually become creative with how your thinking is, is this task here where participants are asked, how many uses can you think of for this particular brick? Um, and when, when I first saw this, I kind of did the test myself and I realized like, I got pretty stumped after a few things. So, maybe I don't have that much cognitive flexibility, but it is a handy task to be able to measure these things and how you can actually change and, 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 and adjust and think creatively in this sense. Um, and once again, vagus nerve stimulation was actually found to improve creative thinking as measured by this task. Um, so, people on this task, when they're asked to look at different ways that a brick can be used, perform better with vagus nerve stimulation compared to sham. Another great demonstration that the vagus nerve or heart rate variability is actually related to behavioral flexibility. Okay, so we've gone through our three, our three generations of research. The first question, is HIV reduced in psychiatric illness? That's pretty much established except for anorexia. Um, the second one is discovering what features of the illness are these re reductions related to. We're just starting to get a better understanding of what these features are. We've already spoken about a few of them, but um, I'm sure there's plenty more out there in the um, in the literature. And so, this kind of brings us to the, the last idea is, well, how can this knowledge, if there are reductions in HRV and we know what these things are related to, um, how can this knowledge actually inform and treatment and prevention of psychiatric illnesses. Uh, of course, we have vagus nerve stimulation is one option. Um, I know in Germany, I believe it's approved for treatment for, for, for severe depression and a few other countries around. Yeah. Um, so, that, 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 that's one particular option of actually stimulating the vagus there um, as well. Um, now, a second way of doing this is, is actually um, crossing over with my other area of research which is, um, which is oxytocin. Now, you may have heard of oxytocin. Um, it, it's popularly referred to as the cuddle hormone or, or, or the hug hormone. But like any area of research or any new technology, it's gone through a lot of hype. And this matches very closely with this so-called hype cycle. You have any new technology and it goes through this hype cycle. Uh, for instance, um, uh, self-driving cars, for instance. When these self-driving cars have first come out, people are like, this is, this is fantastic. This is going to save us so much time. And then there's an accident. And then people think, wow, we they actually get very disillusioned and they think these self-driving cars, they're not going to help us very much. And then slowly, people get a better understanding of what the limits of these technologies are until we actually get to this so-called plateau of productivity where the uh, abilities of these technologies actually match expectations. Um, intranasal oxytocin uh, has actually gone through the exact same path. We, we originally had a lot of studies, particularly animal studies, which actually found that oxytocin plays a really important role in social behavior, both with the, both with the central administration of oxytocin, um, but also, um, uh, also gene knockout studies. If you knock out the oxytocin receptor in rodents, then a lot of their social behaviors are inhibited. Um, and then this actually came and moved its way to, to human studies, and there was a lot of hope that, um, that oxytocin, we, we got some really good outcomes. For instance, oxytocin also improved performance on the reading the mind and the eyes task, which I've, which I mentioned before. Um, and then we get to the claim that, you know, this is going to fix everything. There are headlines in newspapers going, let's put it in the air vents. Let's, let's drop it from, let's put it in the water. Let's do all these things. It's, it's going to save everything. Um, but then, then a bit of doubt comes in and studies don't begin to replicate. 
um, until we get a few studies which actually say, no, this, um, this, this oxytocin business doesn't work. Uh, one, of the, one of the first findings was that oxytocin increases trust and there was study after study demonstrating that's not the case. Um, but, then, but now we're actually getting better understanding of, um, of what oxytocin can do. And now that the expectation is actually matching reality, things are getting a bit better. Um, this is something that I've looked at quite a lot in regards to uh, social cognition, the fact that oxytocin can actually improve social cognition. Um, but w- w- why am I talking about this? Um, well, basically, if you if you talk to a cardiologist about oxytocin, they're going to go, yeah, of course, it's it's a cardiac hormone. If if you talk to a social ecologist, they'll tell you it's a social hormone. Um, if you talk to a bone researcher, they'll tell you it's a bone hormone. Oxytocin is is many things. It's not just a social hormone. Um, and one thing that it does actually do is it helps regulate blood pressure and as well as regulating heart rate as well. Um, so the question is, well, what does it do with heart rate variability? We know that heart rate variability um, um, has a relationship with social cognition, with social functioning, and so does oxytocin. So maybe these two things are linked. Um, so we do know that there's both uh, direct action on the heart, indirect action centrally as well when it comes to uh, basically the, the location of oxytocin receptors. Um, so there's, there's an idea that it, it can play a role here. And people have actually looked at this. Um, our lab and another lab have actually found that a single dose of intranasal oxytocin can increase heart rate variability. So the question is, do the improvements in social functioning that we see after oxytocin administration, are they actually better explained um, by increases in heart rate variability? We don't know. Um, this is something that I tried looking at myself, but I got a bit too ambitious and I tried measuring ECG inside a scanner. And, um, that's, that's incredibly hard and I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend it. Do, do pulse oximetry instead. We couldn't actually get a good signal. Um, but, but, and so what we wanted to look at was, um, do any improvements actually track with increases in heart rate variability? We don't know. Um, but, uh, I think this is a, this is a very interesting research question to look at when it comes to, when it comes to these things. Okay, so like I, like I mentioned before, intermediate interval data is um, is quite easy to relatively easy to collect. Um, the devices are now quite are quite cheap, um, and a lot of people are actually doing research with uh, smartphones as well. Um, and in a lot of circumstances, that's probably going to give you good enough data with a, with, a, with a few caveats. But when it comes to the collection of HIV, if you're considering doing it yourself or if you're about to embark on a project, um, there's a few caveats that you should be they should be considering. Uh, this is something we went over in, in, a, in a paper here, and one of the most important things was the link between HRV and respiration. Um, if you just sort of carefully take your pulse and take a deep breath in and a deep breath out, um, there's differences. Your heart speeds up and it slows down. So there's a, there's a clear link between respiration and heart rate and heart rate variability. Um, yeah, so you have this, you have this link here be, 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 between these two things. And when you're actually testing, um, resting state heart rate variability, this doesn't make too much of an impact. Um, because when you're at rest and you're breathing spontaneously, um, it's not going to make an impact there. But however, when you, um, when you start doing tasks, which in itself can actually increase respiration rate. For instance, if you're doing a, a, a stressful task, what you're going to get is you're going to get, uh, you're going to get decreases in HRV. But you can't actually figure out whether these decreases are due to a reduction in parasympathetic activity or they're just due to the fact that you're breathing faster. Uh, because just, just the, the very sort of mechanical movement of you, your chest wall moving in and out, that in itself can actually increase HRV. Uh, so it's really important to, to consider. Um, firstly, yeah, it's, it's not going to be too much of a consideration if you're doing resting state. But if you're measuring HRV during a task and if that task is even somewhat stressful or cognitively taxing, then what you're going to find, you're going to find these increases in respiration. So you just need to be really careful if you're doing these things. And still, I see study after study that have been published where people are actually measuring HIV during a task without actually measuring respiration. There are ways that you can measure respiration. You can do these chest belts, which measure these things, and people have accounted for that, and that's great. Um, there are ways as well to actually estimate respiration through an ECG, um, I'm not sure how accurate these are, but they're out there and um, that's something that's definitely worth taking a look into. But ideally, if you're doing um, a task which increases respiration, 
you want to be able to account for, you want to be able to account for respiration if you're measuring or calculating uh, HRV. Now the next thing is uh, is water. Um, we've always known that water intake can have somewhat of an impact on on HRV, um, but we actually weren't sure to what degree. Um, back back during our PhDs when when we were in the lab, and sometimes um, people would sort of walk in with a bottle of water. My colleague would go send them back. You know, get them to come back tomorrow. This is going to have a really bad impact on our measures. Um, whereas I would go, no, I actually think that um, that if you have it doesn't doesn't actually have an effect until you have a lot of water. So we're like, let's do an experiment. Let's find out what happens when you give different dosages of water before testing. So we did no water, um, 200 mils, 400 mils, and 600 mils. And, and we actually found that uh, once you start getting to about 400 mils of water, you start getting really, um, really big effects on the differences in HRV. Um, so what this means practically is if, if, if your participant comes in just sipping a little bit of water, then it's probably not going not to make much of a difference. But if they walk in with a bottle and you ask them, well, have you just finished that? Then you can go, well, it's, it's not going to be, uh, it's not going to be ter- terribly accurate because just, just the actual, um, uh, just drinking the water has artificially, well, not artificially, but drinking the water has, uh, has increased HRV. So this has, this has real, real, uh, real, real consequences. And, um, what it means is just practically speaking, uh, some people go as far as to say, Tell participants not to not to drink water whatsoever. Um, but for some people, um, the even healthy controls, these testing situations are actually a bit stressful, and people want to be able to sip on some water. So basically, one thing which you can do is just to give a standardised amount of a little bit of water. Um, so that can that can help people who are sort of feeling feeling nerves a little bit. But having that little bit of water is not going to have much of a not going to have much of an impact on, um, on on your measures here. And then when you when we when, when we collapsed no water with water in general. Um, we actually found that um, that there were big differences there. So you always want to err on the side of caution for these things, and always think about the um, uh, water consumption. A lot of people often tell their participants, you know, um, probably one of the most common things I get is, well, do I tell people not to not not to smoke beforehand or drink coffee? And the ideal answer to that is yes, but for some people, coffee, uh, caffeine, and nicotine is actually used, um, you know, if if they're dependent on alcohol. If they're anxious, um, th- these are actually used to help calm their nerves. And telling people not to, if they're, if they're smoking more than 10 cigarettes a day, telling people not to smoke is going to be more stressful than actually getting them to, to, stop, to, to, um, to, to smoke altogether. Same thing with coffee as well. So in this case, it's always better to actually ask, well, can you actually go a morning without coffee or nicotine? And if they go no, then just go, okay, well, just let us know how much you've actually done. It's not ideal, but when you're actually working with clinical populations, you have to actually think about the realities of what you're, of what you're doing. So ideally speaking, no coffee, no caffeine, a light meal and a little bit of water, but you have to really think about the context of, of where you're testing. Okay. Um, now this, um, we're going to get into a bit of stuff on sample size. Um, when it comes to sample size estimation, quite often what people do, if they even justify their sample sizes within research, is that they fall back on Cohen's conventions for what actually constitutes a small, large, or medium effect size, 0.2, 0.5, 0.8. But the thing is, Jacob Cohen, when he published these things in, in 88, never actually intended for these effect size conventions to be used for all research. He basically said, okay, here's a thing that if you have no idea what a small, medium, or large effect size in your research is, use these as an absolute last resort. Um, so that is not the ideal way to actually estimate the sample size for your research. The best way to do it is to consider what is a theoretically interesting effect size. Um, but, and a lot of methodologists and theorists will tell you that. Think about what's theoretically interesting. But for a lot of research areas, this is actually really hard to establish. Um, so I was actually curious as to what the effect size distribution was within heart rate variability. Now, I'm talking about heart rate variability, but you can do this method with anything that you, any sort of area research that you're working with as well to estimate the distribution to be able to actually determine what is truly a small effect size, a medium effect size, or a large effect size in your field. Um, of course, it works better if you have more studies. Uh, this had around 300 studies. I was actually able to pull the effect sizes for heart rate variability. And I calculated what the 50th percentile, which corresponds to a medium effect size, the 25th and the 75th um, percentile was for heart rate variability. 
and, uh, and, and basically I was able to, to have, have these distributions, look at heart rate variability as a whole, but also look at heart rate variability when it comes to different psychiatric disorders. And what was clear was that the effect sizes for psychosis, as I mentioned before, are much, much larger than other disorders, which actually has implications um, for, uh, for, 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 for recruitment. Now, a lot of people are always worried about, are my studies underpowered? But it's also possible to have overpowered studies. And you have to consider, especially when you're working with the clinical populations, you don't want to have to recruit more people than you actually need. So in this context, especially with psychosis, which can be hard to recruit, you don't actually need as many participants if you're looking in a population like this. And this is exactly the same for any sort of research area. Don't, don't always look, look at what your target power is. You don't want to get a, a greater amount of participants than you actually need. So the natural question is, well, okay, these things were taken from published work. And of course, there is effect size inflation. Um, this is probably the, 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 the biggest limitation of this work because even though I'm sort of reporting different effect sizes, um, for, for different studies, perhaps an effect size of 0.3 was really an effect size of 0.2 because of publication bias where people are less likely to publish studies that are non-significant or through various ways, um, be it p-hacking, um, p- explicit or implicit p-hacking, for instance, um, these effect sizes are inflated. So what I did was, um, looking at these 300 effect sizes, um, I basically um, mapped where these fall when it comes to statistical significance. And thankfully, at least for the field of HRV, um, this gray area here, um, these are studies which are less than 0.01. Um, and this white area here is studies which are greater than 0.1. But then what you don't want to see is if there are too many studies which actually come down this orange band um, compared to sort of the uh, the, the wider set of studies, then that's indicative of, of p-hacking. You don't want to have too many studies there. But luckily, in this context, we found in, in this context that I found that there wasn't too many studies down this so-called significance um, contour. Um, so this is actually a um, uh, if, you, if you're familiar with meta-analysis, this is a, a one-sided contour-enhanced funnel plot. It's 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 quite easy to construct um, within um, uh, within metaphor if you use R. Um, to do this thing where it's basically uh, where you can where you can map where where, where the effects fall in relation to p value. So in this context, um, I'm fairly confident that these are these are relatively um, these are relatively accurate. So this actually has certain um, when you're actually looking at what these things actually require, you can actually see that if you're looking at a, if you're looking at a large effect, you don't need as many participants, and these large effects. Um, um, uh, associated with people with schizophrenia, for instance. But if you're looking for a small effect, then you, you need a lot of participants. Now, quite often, we're not just doing case control studies. Um, we're looking at HRV. We're looking at other studies um, which have potentially more modest effects. When you start combining HRV with other measures, like um, like neuroimaging, for instance, you tend to have larger, you tend to have smaller effects there. Um, but these are, v- are very difficult to recruit. Um, often you speak to methodologists and they go, well, you know, if you, if you don't have a sample size of 200, it's not worth running the study. But practically speaking, we know this can be difficult, um, especially if you're a master's or if you're a PhD student. Um, now, in this case, um, genetics and neuroscience has actually led the way when it comes to um, multi-lab collaborations for combining data sets. Um, as, as we know, neuroimaging data is big and is complicated, yet all these groups have figured out how to do multi-lab collaborations. However, HRV, we know, is just a text file. It's, it's not a small text file, but it's a relatively, relatively small text file. So I don't see any reason why we shouldn't actually be combining forces when it comes to HRV, especially when we're dealing with smaller effect sizes. And this is something that we've done, is we were interested in looking at the relationship between cortical thickness and HRV. Um, now, these kind of things you'd expect there to be a, you'd expect there to be a, a, a small effect size. So speaking to, all these people, the biggest sample a lab had was about um, 200, which was our lab in Oslo and a few other labs as well. But still, that wouldn't be enough. So we basically put the call out. Um, we, we spoke to a few labs and we started off with four and we put the call out online going, does anyone have data on HRV and cortical thickness? And we ended up getting 20 labs, 20 people who wanted to participate, um, which is fantastic to see that people actually shared their interbit interval data because in the scanner, quite often, it's actually collected via pulse oximetry and cortical thickness data. And um, we got 20 labs here. And as you can see, there, there is a, a little bit of a range 
when it comes to the distribution of HRV. In this case, it was RMSSD, which is one measure of HRV. And there was also uh, a bit of a, a bit of a mix when it came to sex distribution as well. Some studies only had one sex, others had a mix there, and were able to to combine these things. And there was also a bit of a mix when it came to mean cortical thickness as well. So, it, despite having a lot of labs, of course, we have to actually include different labs. We have to include different sex distributions into our model as well. Um, so this is this is data that we've just gotten in and that I'm just analysing. So hopefully. We'll get the um, we'll get the information there soon, but it's an important demonstration that. Uh, and for me, I just wanted to do this not only just for the actual research question, but I wanted to do this to actually see are HIV researchers willing to collaborate? And the answer was a resounding yes. So this is really good. And the next step, hopefully, is um, is looking at maybe some functional imaging. Um, but we th- we thought we'd start easy with structural imaging at least. So fingers crossed. We actually pre-registered the um, our analysis here, and we um, we specified six particular brain region sites that we thought would have a relationship with HRV. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, so we'll, we'll wait and see whether our predictions were correct or not. Um, okay, so one other minor thing is that uh, missed artifacts can influence HRV. Um, all it takes is one. This is just a simulation here that when you have no artifacts, your your um, spectrogram looks looks pretty good. But then even a single artifact can actually have an impact on, on HRV. And, and one thing I quite commonly see is that people don't even um, talk about how they're, they're looking at artifacts. So it's a really important uh, thing to look at when it comes to your signal because people don't think, oh, it's just one, it's fine. But no, even one can make a difference. So it's important to, um, <coughs> to look at that. Um, and from, from doing these meta-analyses on HRV, um, it became clear that there's a whole range of different standards when it comes to reporting. Uh, of course, this is a set of standards for reporting HIV, but it's you, you can almost do something very similar for any sort of area of neuroscience as well. And we proposed a set of criteria. Um, originally, we wanted to propose a set, a set of criteria um, for actually reporting and collecting and saying, this is what you should be doing. But we actually figured out that there's no one correct way of doing things. We kept thinking, well, what, what if we say this? Well, like, oh, well, no, that's not going to apply if you're working with kids, for instance. And the thing is, research is so diverse. So I'm always a little bit hesitant to sort of have these pronouncements going, this is how you need to do research. But rather, what we wanted to do is we wanted to say, okay, we don't care what you do, but we want you to actually report what you did and justify what you did so that the reader and the reviewer can understand what's going on here. Um, so it's important, you know, things like how you actually selected your control groups, your inclusion criteria, your demographics, how old people were, for instance. Um, but also when it came to, um, you, you know, how you actually collected the data, that, that's really important as well. Uh, artifact correction, like I just mentioned, how you calculated it, all these important things. So we, we, we made these proposals just, just as a way, almost as a checklist of people when they're reporting HIV can go through, um, and actually say, this is what we did. Um, we, we couldn't say you must do your frequency bands like this because some people breathe faster or breathe slower, for instance. And there's different ways of doing HIV, but it's just a matter of justifying what you did. Okay, and, and the, the final thing I want to talk about is this idea of, of whether resting state recordings are really resting state. Um, back back in the lab when I was doing um, doing a PhD, I, I remember someone knocked on the door and they said, um, oh, I'm, I'm here for the study. And I'm like, great, what's your name? I looked at the name and I said to them, well, you're not actually on tour tomorrow. And they were like, yeah, I know. I just, I just wanted to make sure that I had the right place. This person was obviously in the generalized anxiety group. Um, these things can actually be anxiety-inducing. Um, uh, sitting in the lab, you, you have someone, you're sitting them down, you go, all right, sit still for 10 minutes and do nothing and just be there with your own thoughts while we measure your HRV. These things are very anxiety-inducing. So one thing I'm always thinking about is that other results that we're seeing, within psychiatry at least, purely because people just happen to be more anxious within the lab, one way that we could potentially, that we've started looking at this is as well as doing resting state where people are just told to sit there and do nothing, we're doing what's called the vanilla task, which was established in 93, um, where you get them to do a really, really low cognitive demanding task. This task, we present them with some rectangles and we ask them, count how many yellow rectangles there are, something, something to that effect. So it basically gets their mind of the fact they're sitting there and we're recording the HRV. Um, but, um, yeah, so it's a, it's a very small distractor. And w- what we're really interested in seeing is do these effects that we see, these differences between 
clinical participants, particularly those with schizophrenia and healthy controls, do they change when you actually are doing this, this minimal task, this manila task? So I think that's a really important research question. And if we do find there are massive differences, this has a lot of implications for what resting state truly is. Because I think, I think it's, it's, it's just the very act of sitting there and, and, and actually recording HIV is actually very stressful. If you're neurotypical, this is fine. But if you're in a clinical population, maybe this is a bit different. Okay, so to wrap this up, we know that heart rate variability provides a non-invasive, uh, inexpensive way to approximate autonomic nervous system outflow. We can do this with relatively cheap devices, uh, including your phone nowadays, and that's sort of accurate enough. Um, there are be- better apps than others. Secondly, we need to actually determine what aspects of psychopathology HIV is related to. That's going to give us a better idea because we know we can't use it as a way to identify certain disorders because we actually see this across many disorders. <coughs> and finally, we need to carefully consider what we're doing with HIV. Uh, one of the most common emails I get, with, like, I love getting emails asking questions about HIV. The people are like, I'm doing this really complicated study where people are doing this and people are doing that. Can we just add on HIV? I'm like, why? They're like, we just want something objective. But, but you can't do that. Especially if people are doing, like, they're like, what are they doing? Oh, they're on a, they're doing star jumps and doing all this kind of stuff. I'm like, well, no, they're, they're moving. So there goes your idea. You need to carefully consider what you're doing and actually include HIV from the early planning stages. You can't just tack this thing on. It's not just something you can do to get some fancy numbers at the end. Think carefully about what you're doing. Okay. So before I wrap up, I will be taking uh, questions, obviously, but if you want to send me an email, um, that is my email address. I'm also on Twitter. Um, and as Laura mentioned before, I do a psychophysiology podcast, um, called Physiology and Behavior, which I talk about HIV and oxytocin. And I do a methodology podcast called uh, Everything Hurts, which is about uh, scientific life, particularly if you're an early career researcher, but also methodology as well. But uh, yes, thank you for your attention. That's all for today. Thanks for listening to Physiology and Behaviour. Make sure you subscribe to the show in your podcast app so you don't miss any future episodes. Bye for now.